Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Uh, my name is Maddie Silverstein. I teach philosophy here at NYU Abu Dhabi. And on behalf of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, it's my pleasure to welcome you uh, to this evening's discussion. Our featured speaker tonight, sitting all the way on the end there, is Kwame Anthony Appiah, professor of philosophy and law at NYU in New York. Prior to joining NYU in 2014, Professor Appiah held positions at an array of outstanding universities, including Cambridge, Yale, Cornell, Duke, Harvard, and Princeton. Uh, over the course of this distinguished career, he's published articles and books on an astonishingly wide array of philosophical topics, but he's perhaps best known for his work in political philosophy. In his book, The Ethics of Identity, which was published, I think, in 2006, 2005? <laughs> um, Professor Appiah defends uh, what he calls rooted cosmopolitanism, a view that attempts to strike a balance between, on the one hand, communitarianism, which emphasizes the value of culturally embedded practices and inherited identities. And on the other hand, liberalism, which calls for us to stand back from our local practices and identities and evaluate them from some kind of detached point of view. In 2006, he published a shorter and more accessible presentation of the view uh, in this book, Cosmopolitanism, uh, which I cannot recommend highly enough. <laughs> Sorry, I can recommend it. Uh, so his question this evening is, what on earth is a citizen, oh, it's not up there. Uh, what on earth is a citizen of the world? Uh, before we let him address that question, my fellow panelists, uh, which includes Cyrus Patel, uh, professor of literature at NYU Abu Dhabi and professor of English at NYU in New York, and Chiran uh, Raj Pandey, who's a NYU AD first year student, taking a class with Professor Appiah right now, I believe. Uh, so my panelists and I will take a few minutes just to pick up on some of the ideas in Professor Appiah's work on cosmopolitanism and to raise some questions that hopefully he'll be able to address um, during his talk. Our plan, the panelists' plan, is just to speak for four or five minutes each and then to turn the microphone over to Professor Appiah for the main event. And since I'm already up here, I'll go first. Followed by Chiron and Professor Patel. Okay. The challenge to which cosmopolitanism is supposed to be the answer is, as the subtitle of the book suggests, the challenge of living in a world of strangers. We no longer grow up and live only around people who are like us, people who share our values, our customs, our religion. Nowadays, at least in most parts of the world, and of course especially here in Abu Dhabi, we are everywhere confronted by different ways of life in articulating how becoming cosmopolitans can help us live peacefully and even cooperatively in such a pluralistic society, Professor Appiah places a great deal of emphasis on the notion of conversation. Cosmopolitans, he suggests, are willing to engage in conversation with people with different values and from different ways of life. In one of my favorite passages in the book, uh, Appiah describes the value of such conversations as follows. Conversation, he writes, is hardly guaranteed to lead to agreement about what to think and feel. Yet we go wrong if we think the point of conversation is to persuade 
and imagine it proceeding as a debate in which points are earned or scored for the proposition and the opposition. Often enough, as Faust said, in the beginning is the deed. Practices and not principles are what enable us to live together in peace. Conversations across boundaries of identity, whether national, religious, or something else, begin with the sort of imaginative engagement you get when you read a novel or watch a movie or attend to a work of art that speaks from someplace other than your own. So, he continues, I'm using the word conversation not only for literal talk, but also as a metaphor for engagement with the experience and the ideas of others. And, he finishes in this passage, I stress the role of the imagination here because the encounters properly conducted are valuable in themselves. Conversation doesn't have to lead to consensus about anything, especially not values. It's enough that it helps people get used to one another. Now that sounds right to me. Encounters with difference are indeed valuable in themselves, and a pluralistic society in which people are able and willing to engage in these sorts of conversations and exchanges is one that has a halfway decent chance of functioning peacefully and effectively. But this emphasis on conversation, or exchange, also makes me worry. What do we do with people who don't want to participate in these exchanges and encounters? who don't want to reach across boundaries and borders. In short, what do we do with people who don't want to join the conversation? It's these people. Appiah calls them counter-cosmopolitans. We can also think of them as fundamentalists of all stripes, who I think are the real obstacle to peaceful coexistence in a pluralistic society. They just, they just aren't interested in joining our cosmopolitan conversation. Or if they are, it's only with an eye toward gaining the upper hand and then shutting the conversation down, or perhaps merely dictating what we are and are not allowed to talk about. A real solution to the problem or challenge of living in a pluralistic society needs to tell us whether and how we can live with these people, the counter-cosmopolitans, uh, the, counter the fundamentalists, the true believers. My worry about Professor Appiah's cosmopolitanism is that it underestimates the problem it's supposed to help us solve. That problem is not just that we live next to people with different values and people from different religious backgrounds and people with radically different customs. If that really were the extent of the problem, I don't think it would seem so intractable. A radically diverse society in which everyone is already willing to engage in exchanges or conversations with one another is already well on its way to peaceful and even prosperous coexistence. The challenge we face today is more serious. It's the challenge of living in a society where a significant and vocal segment of the population is convinced that conversation is a waste of time. And it's depressingly easy to see why a true believer might not have patience for or interest in cosmopolitan encounters. If I'm a true believer, if I'm convinced that my way of life is the only good one and that my religion is the only true one, why would I bother getting to know your way of life, which I'm obviously going to regard as misguided, or your religion, which I'm certainly going to regard as false? In short, our problem is not that we live in a world of strangers, but that we live in a world of strangers, some of whom long for the radically local and homogenous world of their ancestors. 
So my question for Professor Appiah is, how do we cultivate cosmopolitanism in people like that? And if we can't, how can the various elements of our diverse society really coexist peacefully? So now, Chiron, you're up next. Thank you. Um, obviously, it's an honor to be here. Um, so my interest in global citizenship and cosmopolitanism is uh, greatly mediated by my identity as a Nepali person. Um, now, this like any other identity, you know, cultural, religious, or racial, um, it's manifested in various ways, right? Now, in 2015, Nepal's constitution in more than 15 years was promulgated, and this new constitution rejected the right of a woman to pass on citizenship to their children. Now, the rationale behind this is uh, thought to be that Nepal shares an open border with India along the south, east, and west. Um, this means that many women travel across the border for employment opportunities or to get married. Um, the children born out of such marriages or out of wedlock is half born to an Indian person, right? So although the mother will be Nepali, the child will be, by virtue of their father's national identity, Indian. Um, now, the idea is that children, children like these, if granted citizenship, will ultimately accumulate enough you know, cultural, economic, and social capital to overthrow the so-called authentic Nepali cultural and governmental core. Uh, the problems are obvious. Um, now, over four million people are stateless today in Nepal, and you know, in an ever-progressive world, Nepal's new constitution, right, it's almost oxymoronic, is still discriminating between a man and a woman. But the implicit assumptions, and as well as the driving force behind these assumptions, are even more troubling to me. A part of being Nepali uh, is embracing the idea that your identity is mediated by cultural, political, and economic influence by your larger neighbors, uh, India and China. Now, almost all of us in Nepal grow up learning to speak Hindi, Nepal is a majority Hindu nation, not unlike India. Many of our cultural practices are also very similar. Economically, Nepali currency is pegged 1 is to 1.6 to the Indian currency. Politically, India undoubtedly exerts great influence on Nepal, either implicitly and through certain back channels, or explicitly, as in the widely known and horrific 2015 Indian blockade, which blocked the import of essentials such as fuel and medicines to Nepal in res response to the new constitution's proposal of a federal structure. Now, it, it, it seems to me from this, uh, from this dark view of Nepal's relationship with India that limiting the mobility of Indians across the border would help Nepal, uh, you know, were it not so much dependent economically on India, deal with this kind of hegemony. Um, now, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, I don't believe that the constitutional discrimination of women for an unfounded, partly political and partly cultural reason is right. But this kind of hegemony is, it's incompatible with my own cosmopolitan values because it exerts um, an unjust economic and political order on Nepal. Now, by extension, of course, a cultural, cultural order is also imposed, although perhaps that is manifested in many different ways. Now, I'm, I'm interested in hegemony through, uh, from both a political and a literary standpoint. Now, from a political standpoint, the question I want to pose is, you know, is it okay, and that is to say, is, is it compatible with the cosmopolitan project to constrain the mobility of certain people in order to counteract hegemony? Um, or, you know, if not, what is the 
solution to hegemony and this sort of neo-imperialism. Now, the same question stands from a literary standpoint as well. Is it okay to constrain the mobility of certain people in order to counteract cultural and literary hegemony? Um, I, I think Professor Appiah's view would be, you know, probably not. Um, and that's probably my view as well. Um, but by extension, another question that I, that I want to pose is, you know, can we frame a kind of positive argument for a cosmopolitan identity or for global citizenship, not in spite of the nation state, but by the nation state? Now, that is to say, can we contemplate ways to think about cosmopolitanism not only as an individualist project, but also as a nationalistic project, mediated by a national ethical or judicial tradition? Or is that too much to ask of any particular nation or people? Now, while those are both questions that I want to answer and I want answered, um, I think uh, the sort of precondition to both questions is the idea that cosmopolitanism is an inherent good, um, both practically and politically. But, so both of my questions are you know, premised on the idea that the interaction of certain local things, right, peoples, cultures, politics, with their foreign counterparts has led to a situation of disagreement and more importantly, more importantly, disadvantage, given that you know, there are certain advantages. Um, so I think one of the underlying and perhaps more important questions that I would like answered for, for my own sake and for the sake of those present is, why is cosmopolitanism and global citizenship good, right? And why is this discussion important? Um, so I think Professor Patel is going to show. Thank you. Some years ago, never, never mind how many exactly, a first-year student came to my office hours having completed a course that was called Conversations of the West. This was back in NYU, New York, in which this book had been one of the key readings. And she came to me asking how she could put some of the values and that we'd been discussing, some of the theories of cosmopolitanism, into practice. And I like to think of the question that she asked at that time as a version of the question that I think we're asking tonight. What can it mean to be a citizen of the world, uh, it, particularly when we don't have a thing called a world government? What does it mean to think of yourself as somehow a world citizen? And at the time, I talked to her about trying to put into practice the point of view that I take to be at the heart of uh, Professor Appiah's count of cosmopolitanism, which is that cosmopolitanism may have originated as a kind of alternative to nationalism, uh, to the idea that if you were a citizen in ancient Greece, your identity was primarily formed as part of your membership in a polis or city-state, or that later on your national identity is somehow natural. Rather, the cosmopolitan asks to think of oneself as a citizen of the world, to think of one's global attachments, and to model those attachments, in Professor Appiah's point of view, on your local attachments. I tried to explain to her, and in that course, that that meant cultivating more than simply this opposition between the national and the global, but really a way of thinking about the relationship between sameness and difference. And that cosmopolitanism has come to mean an alternative not only to universalism, the idea that we're all the same, upon which it draws, but also an alternative to multiculturalism, which might mean a respect for and even a prioritizing of the ways in which we are all somehow different. 
One of the key points that Professor Appiah makes is that cosmopolitans are not moral relativists. They think that some ideas are better than others, and that it's the goal of the cosmopolitan to try to identify which of those ideas are better, not through stipulating them as Professor Silverstein's true believer might, but really through testing them through conversation. And I want to add something else, through a kind of self-consciousness about one's own beliefs. Here as a supplement to Professor Appiah's view, I found the work of the, the uh, Australian sociologist, now I'm forgetting his first name, um, Singer. Peter, not Peter Singer. Oh, sorry, Brian Turner. Brian Turner's view of, what he, of two things, one of which he calls cosmopolitan virtue, the idea that we have a responsibility to kind of distance oneself from one's own kind of cultural assumptions in order to be able to undertake these conversations. More than that, Brian Turner tells us that we should con cultivate something therefore called cult cult cosmopolitan irony. And as a literary and cultural person rather than a philosopher, it's this irony that interests me. And so when I teach this material to students, I tell them that they should be trying to create this sort of self-conscious standpoint, trying to cultivate this standpoint of cosmopolitan irony precisely by, by being attuned to the dynamics of sameness and difference in whatever it is they're reading. So if a text feels familiar, I tell them, make it different, embrace its difference. If a text feels really alien and different or like it's coming from a completely alien point of view to them, find some portion of it that strikes them as similar or like-minded and use that as the hook on which to hang their interpretations and their ways of, of reading. So it's this cultivation of sameness and difference that I think is at the heart of Professor Appiah's work. One way of putting it is, for a universalist thinker, difference is a problem that needs to be solved. For a multiculturalist, difference is something that needs above all to be preserved. For a cosmopolitan, difference is something that you might say is the spice of life. Rather than a problem, it's something to be embraced. But difference doesn't necessarily have to be held sacrosanct, and it needs to be tested. So my student and I talked about these things those years ago, and ultimately it became clear that she had actually a particular personal question that she wanted. It took us a while to get around this. But that question is really a version, I think, of Professor Silverstein's question, and I think it's worth posing to Professor Appia again. And that question is, how do I square all of this that you've been talking about with my fundamentalist Christian upbringing? So I'm going to pose that question to you. She came up with her own solution. Maybe we can talk about that later. Thank you. Um, well, thank you all very much, and um, um, I like a lot of what each of you said, and I'll, uh, let me just make a few general remarks that I hope will connect, uh, well, I will try to connect explicitly with something said by each of the, <laughs> of the first three speakers, but most of our time this evening will be, I hope, a, a conversation. Um, after all, I'm supposed to be the apostle of conversation, so... <laughs> rather the, than the, the apostle of sermons and speeches. Um, so, uh, and uh, I should say that it's a great pleasure to be, to be here in Abu Dhabi again. Uh, so global citizenship begins with an ideal. We humans should think of ourselves, as Sarah said, as if we were citizens of a single state. And because there is no literal state for us to be citizens of, this has to begin as a metaphor. So it needs interpreting. You could respond that we should just make a world state so we can just be literal fellow citizens, 
But I borrow from Diogenes of Sinope, who lived two and a half thousand or so years ago, an interpretation of the metaphor that denies this. He denies this on the basis of a picture of the human situation that suggests that that would be a bad idea. One part is epistemological. Uh, we cosmopolitans doubt that any human being or any tradition is going to be right about anything. So we're fallibilists. We, um, we worry about the possibility that we might be wrong and uh, imposing one system, one view on everybody risks imposing a system that is wrong, uh, whereas exploring the different human possibilities, making what John Stuart Mill called experiments of living, is a way of uh, 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 mitigating that risk. A second uh, part of the picture is a kind of pluralism about human values. We think that people can flourish, human beings can flourish in many different forms of society, partly because people are different, and, uh, and partly because there are many values and, and you can't live by, you can't take all of them with the same seriousness in every form of life. Um, I like to say it's hard to see how the form of life of a bishop uh, can be compatible with the uh, valuing the very same things as the form of life of a general. Generals and bishops are pursuing different values. The, the values may both be worth pursuing, that may all be worth pursuing, but you can't take them with equal seriousness in a single life. And similarly, different societies are going to explore different uh, ways of organizing social life, um, and, um, and, uh, and in order to explore them, they're going to have to explore them and not something else, and so we'll, we'll end up with variety. And that's one of the reasons why, as I say, I think that the cosmopolitan picture um, doesn't fit very well uh, with the idea of, of a global state, because the worry is that that will close down these explorations, as it were, prematurely. Uh, it may be that uh, I'm, I don't have a view about human life 5,000 years from now, <laughs> but I do have a view about uh, the rest of my life and the rest of Chiron's life and the rest of his children's lives, and that is that in that time, nobody's going to find all the answers. And in the meantime, we need space to explore different solutions. Nevertheless, there is one norm that cosmopolitans, I think, have to take for granted, or one, one background assumption. And that is that, that every human being matters, and that all of us have a shared responsibility for making a world in which we can all live decent lives. Um, how, how demanding that demand is, is a matter of disagreement and interpretation. But, the, uh, but nobody can count as a cosmopolitan who thinks that there are humans who don't matter, and nobody can count as a cosmopolitan who thinks that it doesn't follow from that. There are some things that you mustn't do to other humans, wherever they're from, and maybe that there are some things that you must do in order to make the world livable for them. So on the one hand, we don't need a single world government, but on the other hand, we do need to care for all human beings inside and outside our own literal societies, our own uh, uh, the place that the, 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 the uh, I mean, cosmopolitess means citizen of a polis. Each of us lives in a polis, as it were, uh, and there are many of them. And we have responsibilities both within and without. And finally, as uh, as Maddie stressed at the start, uh, we I believe cosmopolitans of my sort believe that there's much to be gained from conversation in this extended sense across these differences.
Now, when this form of cosmopolitanism, uh, which has a long history uh, in, uh, in what we rather misleadingly, I think, call the West, um, and, and I think it has interesting histories elsewhere, outside anything that anyone would call the West, but in the, in the, in the background to, say, the European Enlightenment, um, as, uh, which, uh, at the end of which um, uh, develops the ideology of modern European nationalism, um, in that period, uh, cosmopolitanism develops too, and, it, and at that point, there's a development of a kind of cosmopolitan nationalism combination of cosmopolitanism and nationalism, which I think has gotten lost to view uh, in many places uh, in the time since. Um, it's particularly ironical, I think, that this view was first well articulated by, uh, in the German Enlightenment by people like uh, Johann Gottfried Herder, because, um, of course, Germany did so much, in the, particularly in the early 20th century, to, uh, uh, to live out a vision of nationalism that was profoundly anti-cosmopolitan. But the fact is that the founders of, the, um, of German nationalism, were in, uh, the intellectual founders, the philosophical founders, were in fact profoundly cosmopolitan, as well as nationalists. They took it to be obvious that what was good for the Germans, which was the, that they should develop together a community of people who would take charge of their political destiny, was good for everybody, and that different peoples had different destinies, all of which were worth um, were, were worthy. Everybody's nation should be important to her or to him, and, and they took it for granted that that was so. The, the, the sort of central metaphor here uh, might have been the idea of um, that humanity is a kind of great choir, uh, but it only works if everybody's singing a different line, if, if we're, all, uh, we're all making our own music, we're making music together, but we're contributing different things to the great hymn of humanity. So uh, modern cosmopolitanism, as I say, grew, uh, was sort of articulated with modern nationalism, not as an alternative to it, but as a complement to it, as something uh, that would fit with it. And that's, and I'm very much persuaded um, in, in the work on cosmopolitan patriotism, for example, or on rooted cosmopolitanism, that this is uh, the possibility that we ought to explore. Now, um, but as I said, this uh, form of cosmopolitanism, because it was compatible with nationalism, uh, was, uh, respected the value of different human ways of going on. And that's, of course, why it doesn't go with world government. Um, so Herder believed that the German-speaking peoples were entitled to live together in a single political community, but he thought that what was good for the Germans was good for everyone else. And so unlike many other Germans then and later, he believed in the political self-determination of all the peoples of, of the world. In fact, he's a scathing critic of European imperialism, one of the earliest uh, European critics of European imperialism. There were, of course, many non-European critics of European <laughs> imperialism right from the start. Um, it's, um, so people, um, so I think my answer to the, the sort of philosophical part of Chiran's question is yes, people are entitled to preserve distinct communities. That's part of the point. Part of the point is that we're exploring different things. Um, but there are constraints. Uh, uh, you, you identified one, I think, in your example. I think that um, uh, my own view is, uh, and it's a view that I'm glad to say is widely spreading across many civilizations at the moment, is that uh, discriminating between men and women in the pursuit of such a, uh, a project is not, uh, is not uh, permissible. Uh, if you're going to have laws that, 
uh, if you're going to have communities that are distinct, you're going to have to have laws about how people come in and out, but those laws should not be racist, they shouldn't be sexist, uh, they shouldn't be um, like some of the current regulations proposed by the President of the United States, uh, Islamophobic. There are lots of moral constraints on the kinds of... Uh, uh, but the idea that it's permissible, yes, I think it's right. And so you have to be... You have to a balance, as one always does when one's balancing universality and difference, but to balance the, the moral demands against the need for what in a paper I once called the comforts of home, the sense that you've made a place uh, and you, um, you want to keep it. Uh, you, that is collectively, are working to keep it a certain way. And it's um, precisely the conversation, com combination of the respect for the rights of individuals and communities to live their own lives that roots the cosmopolitan respect for difference. I, I like uh, very much a passage in, um, in a novel by George Eliot, Daniel Deronda, which she published in 1876, um, which I think articulates this. Deronda was, um, is, a, is, a, is raised in England, and he only discovers that he's got, uh, he's, he's of Jewish ancestry when he's an adult. And when he discovers this, uh, he responds in this way uh, to the discovery that he has found his hereditary people. It was as if he had found an added soul in finding his ancestry, his judgment no longer wandering in the mazes of impartial sympathy, but choosing with the noble partiality, which is man's best strength, the closer fellowship that makes sympathy practical, exchanging that bird's eye reasonableness, which soars to avoid preference and loses all sense of quality, for the generous reasonableness of drawing shoulder to shoulder with men of like inheritance. But notice that in in claiming a Jewish loyalty, this added soul, he's precisely not rejecting his universal self. He says to his mother, I think it would have been right that I should have been brought up with the consciousness that I was Jew. It must always have been a good to me to have had a, as wide an instruction and sympathy as possible. I want to be an Englishman, but I want to understand other points of view. I want to get rid, I love this phrase, I want to get rid of a merely English attitude in studies. So I think a creed that disdains the partialities of kinfolk and community for a kind of impartial, abstract, universal sympathy does, isn't going to work. And that's why I think cosmopolitanism has to begin with a respect for roots. Now, conversation across identities, across religions and races and nationalities and, and so on, ethnicities, is worthwhile, to answer the, another word, appearance challenges, because... Through conversation, you learn from people with different, even incompatible ideas from your own. There are many ways from learning from people that don't involve coming to accept their view. Dialogue with others is, is, it can be a way of learning, even if it doesn't aim at agreement. And it can be worthwhile, too, because if you accept that you live in a world, as we certainly do now, with many different kinds of people, and you want to live in respectful peace with them, you have to try to understand one another, whether or not you agree. So in insisting that cosmopolitans have a respect for legitimate difference, however, I want to underline that one kind of difference that we accept as legitimate is precisely some forms of anti-cosmopolitanism. We're not happy with those who don't recognize the idea that we have obligations to one another. Those people we think are just wrong. But we do accept that some people don't want to converse with strangers and that they have a right not to do so. There are limitations on the right, though, set by our universal obligations to one another. 
One of these, for example, one of these universal obligations, one which Kant stressed uh, in one of the great writings of the Enlightenment on this topic, is a right to asylum. You can't refuse people from a nation. You can't refuse to take into your nation a fair share of people who are fleeing oppression and murder. That's another constraint on Nepal's right to limit the freedom of movement across its borders. Um, but beyond that, beyond the, res- the necessary respect for the principles that one should respect in this area, but beyond that, if you don't like strangers, we cosmopolitans say you don't have to converse with them. Conversation, like sex and like trade, requires consenting adults. Cosmopolitans do try to sell our attitude. We try to persuade people they'll have a better time, make more of their lives if they join in that conversation. But if they say, like some of the Mennonites in Pennsylvania, in the United States, or some ultra-Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem, or some Salafis in, in Saudi Arabia, that they prefer to live in a closed world of their own making, I don't think we have the moral right to impose our vision on them. Conversation of a cosmopolitan kind is rewarding and pleasurable. It is not a duty. And if you don't want to solve... Um, problems between people who live together but are different with talk, the only way that we have to settle that problem, if we face a choice between letting you wrongly harm others and doing nothing, the only only option we have is to try and stop you uh, uh, if the conversation, if you're not open to discussion and you're doing something seriously wrong, there isn't any option except if, if we take seriously the view that everybody matters. Uh, but to try and stop you. Now, um, uh, these innovations, in, 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 uh, interventions have to be intelligent, which they're often not. And sometimes there's nothing we can do at reasonable cost to enforce the right of others. That's some people's view about the situation in Syria today. But thinking that every human being matters means that we have to do our fair share to make sure that everyone gets what they're entitled to, though that doesn't mean that we can guarantee that they will, in fact, get it. So I said, if you don't want to talk, and by talk, I meant something different than what I mean by conversation. Talk can be directed, instrumental, aimed at coming to practical agreement. It's what goes on when you're negotiating a business deal or a treaty or negotiating in a legislature about how to shape a bill. Um, conversation is not instrumental, it goes on for its own sake, and while I believe it has good consequences, it usually has those good consequences when you're not aiming at them. It's, it's like, um, it's like uh, archery in the view of the Zen masters, you're only going to hit the bullseye every time if you stop caring about the bullseye. So I think in a globalizing world, we need enough cosmopolitans to help build the links across societies that will make global, and within them, that will make global uh, survival and uh, comity, social comity possible. But we don't need everybody to be a cosmopolitan. So to respond a little bit to Maddie's worry, I think that many people who look as though they are against conversation are really objecting to being talked at. They think that liberal cosmopolitans offer to converse but end up simply lecturing and don't listen. And who would want to enter an encounter like that? So if we practice real conversation, which involves a lot of listening, um, I'm not 
too worried that we won't find enough takers, though I accept that, that not everyone will, uh, will accept uh, those terms. Um, I'd like to end with an answer to the question that Sarah's student asked. Um, how do I reconcile these sorts of cosmopolitan practices with, my, with a fundamentalist Christian upbringing? Well, cosmopolitanism imagines conversations among people with very differing starting points, including different reasons for thinking cosmopolitanism is a good idea. I think it's very important that the, that the engagement of cosmopolitanism in this conversation doesn't come from, it doesn't only come from the sort of liberal cosmopolitanism that I, that I believe in. Uh, people can be cosmopolitan from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, the, 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 the criterion is, are you willing to engage in the conversation? The theory of the conversation, well, that can differ, and some people don't have any theory of the conversation at all. They're just having a good time. So for a self-identified fundamentalist Christian, I think I would start with the observation that St. Paul, though he can be a bit grouchy, was one of the great cosmopolitans. After all, in the epistles of the Galatians, he famously wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, but ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And in his polemic with Peter, uh, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, insisted that the followers of Christ did not have to follow Jewish ritual codes because those were demands that grew out of the special covenant between Yahweh and Abraham and his descendants. So this is precisely a recognition that different communities have different historical paths, which I said was one of the claims of cosmopolitanism. So there's a, there's a Pauline route to cosmopolitanism, just as there's a liberal one. And at least from my point of view as a liberal cosmopolitan, I'm happy to talk with the Pauline cosmopolitans anytime. I've thought a lot about that moment when you talk about St. Paul in, yes, in, uh, in the book on cosmopolitanism. And I'd like to just ask you a little bit more about it, because it does seem to have the assumption that there are many roads to belief in Christ, and anyone is welcome to believe in Christ, but at the end of the day, one, everyone should believe in Christ if you want to find your way to the truth. And I'm wondering how you make a distinction between Paul's view and the view, the, the German view that you site, which is, you say it better than I do, but uh, it has something to do, well, the, the, the punchline is, you know, believe what I believe, or I'll bash your head in, or something like that. So, exactly. So, so how would we make that distinction? I mean, is it possible that Paul is ultimately not a cosmopolitan, but a very oh, somewhat tolerant universalist? Oh, it's on. Um, uh, so there are different ways of reading St. Paul on this topic. Uh, uh, and clearly, um, he does, you know, think that he's discovered the way, the truth, and the life. And so he thinks that uh, the people he disagrees with are wrong. Uh, so it's, but nevertheless, um, this is a view that as it were, has the germ of the cosmopolitan idea because it has this idea that there is more than one way to lead a decent life. Now, um, modern cosmopolitans 
who think of the universalist part of the cosmopolitan picture as roughly being expressed, say, in, in the, the idea of fundamental human rights. I mean, a contested idea about what they are, but, but still the idea that they're... Um, are similar in a certain way, right? There are, some, there are some boundaries that they won't cross. They're much wider than St. Paul's boundaries. But St. Paul's boundaries were already wider than the people he was arguing with. Um, he was arguing with St. Peter, who, who, who wanted, you know, everybody to do everything exactly the way uh, that uh, he thought um, orthodox, or, well, he wouldn't have said orthodox, um, Jews should do it. So I think I'm saying there's a kind of, point of leverage here. Um, no, no cosmopolitan is going to be open to every form of difference. That's why I always talk about legitimate difference. Uh, and there's going to be contest about where the boundaries of legitimate difference are. St. Paul, the point about St. Paul for these purposes is that he drew them wider than some of his, um, some of the sort of, as it were, more Jewish Christians and, and some of the more Christian Jews of his time. Uh, but I agree that, uh, and it's always, there's always going to be a question um, uh, sort of, you know, as you enter the conversation, what, what are the boundaries? I, I, I have lots of, you know, we all do, we all have you know, things that, uh, uh, points at which um, we can't imagine um, learning more from someone who holds that view. Someone thinks it's just fine to, um, uh, to, uh, to abuse spouses, female spouses, right? I mean, I don't know, I just can't imagine a productive extended conversation in which they stick to their view. And if I've had a bit of a conversation and they've been sticking to their view, I'll want to move to a different topic. But it doesn't mean I can't talk to them. I can talk to them about other things. And indeed, one of the points, I think, about sort of conversational relations, precisely because they're not um, instrumental, is that you can... It's very hard to find someone who you can't converse with about anything. Um, the world is full of people who are willing to talk to you about soccer. Um, uh, despite what people think in the United States, the world isn't full of people who want to talk to you about baseball. But in Japan, there's lots of them, and so you can have a conversation with them. Um, um, those of us who grew up in the British Commonwealth know that cricket is a useful topic of conversation in uh, Australasia, the Caribbean, Africa... Uh, in South Asia, as well as in Britain, so in Canada, and a little bit in New York now. So, so I mean, you know, there are, I think actually one of the great functions of sport is to provide a kind of topic of, of engagement between people who don't have very much else in common. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And, and novels and movies and so on. So the idea is that there are many topics upon which... So if we don't get stuck on the one topic where we disagree, we could talk about many other things. Is it your view then that the more we talk, the more it might ultimately be possible to pave the way to some kind of disagreement? Or the fact that we just get used to being, it's harder to demonize the person that's right next to you. Right. To you. I, I, I think my theory of this is, 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 is the thing about getting used to one another. Um, people, um, so my sort of experience of this, I actually talk about this in the book, uh, I think my first sort of conscious awareness of this was with my uncle Aviv, Aviv Safi, who was from Lebanon, was married to my aunt. And, um, and he was a Muslim, uh, which he, lots of Lebanese aren't, but he was. Uh, and, uh, and my aunt was a Christian, and uh, a Ghanaian Christian. <laughs> and 
he clearly took enormous ple um, pleasure isn't quite the right word but for him his his religious life was enormously important it, it filled his it filled, you know his Fridays were wonderful and so on and every day was wonderful and he was a, a very generous loving person he must have thought that we were wrong in some sense because we, we were Christians and we were not accepting that uh, the prophet was the prophet but we loved him, he loved us, I loved his children, his children, you know, my cousins. Uh, and that kind of, you know, and we ate together, they came to us for Christmas, we went to them for Eid. That kind of cohabitation is not a theoretical matter. And, um, and it, it can lead you, I mean, the, the sort of, the purists will object. They will say, but he should have been banging the table and telling us we were wrong and we should have been telling him um, that he should accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. But I believe that the way that, that the world works best if people acknowledge that because they might be wrong, because they don't understand everything, uh, because none of us understands everything, that um, you can get along. This is more than getting along. This is marrying and living with and having children with someone with, uh, with whom you disagree about a relatively important question. I mean, of course, the prophet himself thought that uh, Christians, uh, provided they behaved uh, properly, uh, didn't need to be converted. So he could have said, I'm just doing, I'm just doing what's... But, but he thought, I mean, nevertheless, he did think we were wrong about something, something important, something where he got enormous value from what he took to be the correct view. But he still could live with us. And I think, I mean, more than could. I mean, he did beautifully live, as it were, in the family. So I think um, that's the picture I have, that um, we can... If, if you focus on propositional agreement as the basis of cohabitation, you're lost. I mean, uh, I live in a philosophy department. There are five offices, six offices on my floor. We don't agree about hardly anything. <laughs> I mean, anything important in metaphysics or ethics or epistemology. Uh, if we had to agree about those things in order to be able to be in a department together, we'd have to close the department down. And I think, you know, that's how life is. Um, so the worry, I, I mean, so on the one hand, you know, I, I find that quite comforting. <laughs> um, but the worry... It, is that so many people hold their religious beliefs in a way that's very different uh, from the way in which you hold your philosophical beliefs and the way in which some of us might hold our religious beliefs, right? And that when, you know, their religious beliefs provide the principles around which they organize their lives, provide the very meaning for their lives, uh, provide comfort in the face of death, um, I think it can be a really tall order to adopt the kind of fallibilist attitude that you're describing towards a set of beliefs that play that role in your life. And asking someone to do that can seem to them uh, as though you're asking them not to take their religion so seriously. Right. So what you're doing is... Um, is not asking them not to take their religion seriously... But it's, it's asking them to consider the possibility that whatever your orientation is to the world is one that you take seriously too. And that, 
And then how the conversation goes depends on who you're talking to, what the tradition is. Uh, Islam has, uh, has a, a profound tradition of toleration for uh, people of the book. So if I'm one of the people of the book and you're a Muslim, I can say to you, you know, in your tradition, you're supposed to, to, to imagine that I could be a serious Jew, Christian, Zoroastrian. Um, uh, I can't say that to, uh, to, a, uh, to, to a, an Orthodox Catholic. To an Orthodox Catholic, I, I have to talk differently. And to a Protestant, I think I, have to, I can say, look, um, in your tradition, what matters is conscience and individual, uh, uh, the individual's understanding of, of his, his or her faith. And it wouldn't be any good for me to go along with you unless I had that faith. So what's the point of, as it were, asking me for outward conformity in our society to your idea of how one ought to live? Maybe you think I'm going to hell, but I don't. And, um, and, in, in, you know, in, and anyway, and then now it depends on whether you're a predestinarian or not. I mean, it depends, you know, the conversation will have to be with particular points of view. But I, I think that these are ways of show, showing to someone that you do take their view seriously. You understand, you're willing to engage in conversation with them about um, the details of their view, if that's what they want to talk about, just as you're willing to talk to them about soccer, which I myself don't find a very interesting game. But I'm perfectly happy to talk to people about soccer if that's what they want to talk about, as it were, uh, some of the time. I mean, I wouldn't want a relationship with someone who only wanted to talk about soccer. Uh, but I'd be happy to talk about soccer when the conversation comes around to it. Um, so I think that, um, you know, how you handle... Um, th there isn't a general answer to the question, what to say to someone who's religiously serious. That, it depends on what their religion is. And, and precisely taking them seriously is wanting to know what their religion is and wondering whether, given what their religion is, there isn't a way that they can have a space for you in their lives that they haven't yet imagined without giving up you know, their own convictions. Now, I agree that that means that there are going to be forms of every religion, uh, well, not every religion, but of the major religions I know about, there are going to be forms which are not compatible with this kind of cosmopolitan attitude. But the point is there are forms of all of them that I'm aware of, all Buddhism, uh, certainly Hinduism in an extreme way, I would say, um, uh, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam. There are versions of all of them that are in this way open to that kind of um, cohabitation because they've done it. Um, so your fundamental question is what to do with someone who doesn't want to converse. The answer is, well, it's, a, it's an activity for consenting adults. If somebody doesn't want to converse, you can't have a conversation with them. You can't force conversation on somebody. Conversation is precisely uh, this, this thing that people do together because they want to. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.